Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest today is Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who has been representing California's 13th district since 1999. She was the only person in Congress to vote against the expanded use of force authorization immediately after the 9-11 attacks and has been a constant force for peace in Congress since. Congresswoman Lee, back in 2001, you were the lone vote against the authorization for use of military force after the September 11th attacks. Thousands of fighters and civilians have died in the Middle East and Afghanistan. Billions of dollars have been consumed. And now thousands of American men and women have returned home to move on with their lives. But the war they fought and the larger conflict beneath it is anything but over. Congress has the responsibility to authorize the use of force. This president has not come for that, and yet he continues to expand these wars. A short time ago, I ordered the United States Armed Forces to launch precision strikes on targets associated with the chemical weapons capabilities of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. The war in Afghanistan is the longest war in American history. The United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. Hello, I'm Congresswoman Barbara Lee, representing the 13th District of California. I'm fighting to cut the Pentagon budget and keep the U.S. out of endless wars. Sorry, not sorry. Congresswoman, in the middle of your second term, 9-11 happened, and you were the sole vote in the House against the use of force authorization. And since then, you fought to have the standing authorization for the president to use force repealed. Tell us why and where that stands. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on. And I really appreciate your voice, your leadership, and your helping with this transformation that's necessary in this country. It is my honor. It's really something what you're doing, Elisa. Thank you. So going back to 9-11, that resolution, let me remind you, this was a horrific attack. So, so many people had been killed, over 3,000 between the Pentagon and Pennsylvania and New York. So quite naturally, members of Congress were furious, as I was, and not sure what to do. People were in mourning. We were trying to take Mm -hmm. care of everybody. I mean, it was a terrible time. I'm a psychology major, psychiatric social worker by profession. Psych 101 tells you you don't make important decisions like going to war when you're grieving. We were in a state of grieving and mourning. So the resolution came before us that the Bush administration and members of Congress had negotiated. It was a terrible resolution. It was 60 words. And basically what it said was the president is authorized to use force forever. I mean, that's paraphrasing it, but it wasn't specific in terms of time frame. It didn't say where, whom, what. It was just a broad, overly broad authorization. Mr. Chairman, when Congress passed the authorization for the use of military force just days after 9-11, it provided the president with a broad authority to strike against those who planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored them. That authorization no longer properly encompasses the scope of military action that we are taking in the ongoing fight against terrorism. 
tried to stop it. I mean, I spoke in Democratic caucus and said, this is going to lead us into endless war. And of course, some members said, yes, but we've got to be with the president. We've got to be unified. We were hit. We've got to retaliate. Now, mind you, my district director, his cousin was Wanda Green on Flight 93. I'm sitting in the Capitol when the plane is coming in. And Wanda and these brave men and women took that flight down as I'm running out of the building. And the history is written. They thought it may have been the White House where Flight 93 was going, but it was actually the Capitol. And that's been proven. And so I'm sharing that because you can imagine the personal kind of trauma. Yeah, of course. And my staff that we were going through. I'm sitting in the Capitol at eight o'clock in the morning, the plane coming in. And Sandre's cousin was one of those who took the plane down. So quite naturally, I'm like, we've got to do something. But I'm saying we don't retaliate until we know and we don't create a situation where there's more danger and more terror that could be perpetrated on anyone around the world, including in our own country. And so when I saw this resolution three days afterwards, mind you, three days, (laughs) I couldn't believe it. That's crazy. I didn't realize it was that fast. It was Fast. And it was actually supposed to come up Saturday after 9-11. It came up that Friday. And I was on the Foreign Affairs Committee where the bill was brought through, even though they went around the rules and just brought it straight to the floor. But that meant I had some floor time to speak. Here in Congress, you get two or three minutes. Well, I think I had two minutes because I was a member of the Committee of Jurisdiction. And so I had decided I was going to vote no at the memorial service when Reverend Nathan Baxter said in his eulogy, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. And I was settled then, even though it was a hard vote, but I was going to vote no. And I'm telling you, everyone, once I voted no, after I spoke and said it, even a lot of the Republicans came up and they weren't angry at me, but they said, this is the wrong vote. This is not right. We've got to do something, but we respect you for it. Henry Hyde was one who (laughs) I did battle with all the time, but he actually came up to me and told me, we respect you. Once I voted no, I went into the cloakroom. I was talking to Elijah Cummins, God rest his soul, John Lewis. A lot of my colleagues who said, we really wanted to vote with you, but this is just not the time. We've got to be unified. So my colleagues didn't come down hard on me, but it was like, this is not the time to do that. You're risking your political career. May not have been the right vote, but we had to do it. Okay, so (laughs) all hell broke loose in my life. Fast forward, death threats, what have you. And so I decided I'm going to stay the course on this and we're going to repeal it because unfortunately, everything I said has come true. And according to the Congressional Research Service, in a declassified report, which we asked for, it's been used over 41 times in 19 countries, even for domestic spying here in the United States for Guantanamo. That is so overly broad, it can be used anywhere in the world. And so what I've been doing since then, every year, trying to repeal it. And believe you me, I've gotten support in Congress through the Appropriations Committee, through the Mm. National Defense Authorization Mm. Committee, finally, to repeal it. But then, of course, it gets in the Senate and then it, or Trump says, get rid of it or I won't sign the bill. Once again, we did that this year. Mr. Speaker, it's my understanding that the Rules Committee has posted a Rules Committee print of the Defense Appropriations Bill and that this committee version does not include the language added during the Defense Appropriations markup on a bipartisan basis in committee that would repeal the 2001 authorization to use force and give eight months, mind you, eight months for Congress to do what our Constitution requires, and that is to debate and to come up with a new vote and to decide what we're going to do on behalf of our country. So it's a matter of time that we repeal this and get it off the list because we cannot allow any administration 
to wage war without congressional authority. Now, when this happened after 9-11 and you made this decision, did you know that it was a brave choice? Not necessarily brave. I knew it was going to be difficult and that all hell was going to break loose. You I mean, did. it didn't seem brave to me. It seemed like the Constitution required us to do so. I'm a person of faith, so my conscience said you do not send troops into harm's way without knowing what the heck you're doing and where they're going. My father was the first one, 25 years lieutenant colonel, called me up and said, that's the right vote. Wow. He said, you do not do this and send these brave kids out into nowhere where you don't right. even know what the deal is. So I didn't see it that way. Do you find that people are more receptive to it now that nearly two decades have passed? Yeah, the public is, but also members of Congress. That's how we get to 250 votes or 240, whatever vote right. I get on the floor. You need 218. And generally, I get past 218. So, yes. I have a couple of stories let me share with you. I was in South Carolina. Of course, I supported Kamala Harris for president. Let's talk more about this historic announcement with Representative Barbara Lee. And uh, uh, Congresswoman Lee, you have been in Harris's corner from day one. Yes, I have. And let me just say uh, how happy I am today. I'm happy for Senator Harris, but also I'm happy for our country. Uh, she's going to be an effective partner with uh, our next president, Joe Biden. I went to South Carolina and I was in Charleston. And this white guy comes up to me in tears with his little boy. And he pushed through the crowd. And he said, you know, Congresswoman, I had to come here. Now he's crying and introduced my son to you because I was one of those who sent you a hate letter. He said, I was one of wow. those who came down hard on you and called you every kind of name in the book. And I want to apologize to you. And I want my son to see me apologize to you. And here, he said, you were right. He went on and on and on about that in South Carolina. The security was kind of looking around like, what is this going, you know? And he was boogling. And this was a South Carolinian white guy with his son. Then another little story, there was a woman in my district Again, you talk about hate mail and death threats. This was like awful. So she sent a letter to me just a few years ago and she sent a $15 check and she said, I was one of those. And now I see what you meant. And mm. I want to apologize to you. And I want you to know I support you, even though it's not a lot of money. I want you to have this for your reelection. It's been remarkable how people now understood it people in the public who even hated me and called me a traitor right, and right. in an act of treason. Now they're actually apologizing. So that really renews my faith in the human spirit and human beings and know that if you stand on what you believe, sooner or later, people will understand. I think that is so true. And I feel the exact same way. And no amount of vitriol will stop me from continuing to follow my heart and to give of myself. And I think we are in such a powerful time right now in this country. And, and I want to switch gears for a second and talk a bit about race, because do I understand correctly that your grandfather was born into slavery? Actually, yeah, they were from Galveston, Texas. Okay. And my grandfather was born somewhere in the 1870s. 
And it was my great grandfather who was born during slavery. He was enslaved. And my grandfather, the Emancipation Proclamation, and then Juneteenth, we didn't, in Texas, I'm from El Paso, Texas, they were actually born in Galveston. And so in Galveston, that's where we finally, a couple of years later, found out that we were freed. And so my grandfather and great-grandfather always told these stories about that. And so I'm a clear descendant, like most Black people in America, from enslaved people. And Juneteenth for me, because of my Galveston grandparents, <laughs> is my Independence Day. So in Texas and in California, we always celebrate, we do Juneteenth as a national holiday. And I hope it legislation that has been put forth oh, it's, does pass. It, yeah. It's got to be a national holiday for sure. Tell me about the path that takes your family in just two generations, basically, from slavery in Texas to a member of the House Appropriations Committee and to have chaired the Congressional Black Caucus. I mean, it's amazing. It's the American dream, I would think. Do you feel well, that Lisa, way? Well, you know, being a woman and being a Black woman, let me tell you, it's something that you just do. My grandfather moved to El Paso, Texas for a better life. And my mother and two aunts were born in El Paso, Texas. And my mother married a captain at the base, Fort Bliss. But let me tell you, when my mother was pregnant, show you this path in the day when I was born, when she was pregnant, she needed a C-section. She went to the hospital to have the Mm C-section with me. They wouldn't admit her into the hospital because she was black. Okay. Now, hold that. My grandmother looked like she was white. Now, Black people in this country, this is our sordid, awful past that happened with Black women. Either slave owners or the heads of domestic household raped Black women. So my grandmother was the product. Her mother worked as a domestic for an Irishman. And he raped her repeatedly, my great-grandmother. And she told me she died at night at 100. So she told me all these stories. So here comes my grandmother who looks like she's white because of her father, that rape. So my grandmother shows up at the hospital and said, this is my daughter. And they look at my mother, who was very fair. She was beautiful with green eyes. But they couldn't quite figure out, was she white? No. My grandmother looked white. And she said, this is my daughter. Let her in now. So they couldn't say anything. So this is the honest truth. They let her in, but they left her on what's called a gurney and did not tend to her. So she became delirious, unconscious. She needed a C-section and she was beginning to go into labor. So finally someone saw her and pulled her in and she told me it was not the delivery room, but it was by then the emergency room. And they didn't know what they were going to do, Elisa, because it was way past time for a C-section. She needed a C-section to deliver me. So the doctor ended up using forceps to pull me out. And I almost died. I almost couldn't breathe. That's why oh. I can't breathe is so dear. And my mother almost died in childbirth. Black women mortality right now, look at what it is. It was that when I was born. Well, I was just going to say it has not gotten much better. I mean, the disparities are devastating even to this day. Yeah, and that's the reflection of systemic racism that's still with us. And I had a scar above my eye from the forceps until just a few years ago. So then I moved to Southern California, okay, as a teenager. So that's how I got started. So just know (laughs) I got started in this world just barely surviving, just barely breathing. And so I have no option but to fight hard for racial and gender equity and justice. So we moved to California, and my parents wanted us to go to public schools there because we went to Catholic schools because public schools were segregated in El Paso. And lo and behold, I want to be a cheerleader, Lisa. And I went to San Fernando High, okay? 
and to be a cheerleader, you had to look right because they had this little select committee. And mm-hmm. if you weren't blonde and blue eyed, you weren't a cheerleader. You right. could not apply. What year would this have been? That was in 62, 63. You can look at the yearbook. This is not so long ago. We organized, made that school. San Fernando High changed the rules of selection for children and made them have elections so we could try out in front of the student body. Well, guess what? Once those rules were changed, I'm 15 years old, mind you, and I said, okay. So those rules were changed. I tried out. I won. That was my first election, and I was the first Black cheerleader at San Fernando High School. But that's that amazing. year, an Asian Pacific American young girl, Jeannie Tanaka, won. And so that was like my first election to break that, that ceiling <laughs> for girls of color and Black girls at San Fernando High. So every stage of my life, it's like I've had to fight, like every Black woman has to fight, to break down barriers for justice and for equity. And so I've just been doing that all my life. And then I worked for a great Ron Delms for 11 years. He made me his chief of staff. There were like two or three Shirley Chisholm's chief of staff who I got involved in politics as a result of Shirley Chisholm being the first black woman to run Mm -hmm. for president. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. I am not the candidate of Black America, although I am Black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I'm equally proud of that. On Capitol Hill, I think it was only two Black women who were chiefs of staff. I was one of them. And so you can imagine how I had to deal with that navigating. What an amazing life you have lived and the fight. What does it mean to you to see this uprising right now? Gosh, I'm so happy. First of all, I'm so sad that it took a horrific murder of Mr. Floyd to shine the light on systemic racism. But hell, I worked with the Black Panther Party as a community worker in the 70s. And we were standing down the police then and trying to protect our communities from police brutality. So for me, I've been doing this as a Black progressive woman forever. And so now it's like, wow, I see myself in these young people and I just honor them and know that they're going to be the ones to take this to the next stage and the next level. And so I'm out there with them. I'm doing everything I can do. I'm still an activist, mind you, but I'm inside. I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to honcho inside, outside, inside, outside to make sure that their voices are heard in this legislative process. You have just seen our country change so much. You've served in Congress during the terms of Barack Obama and now under Donald Trump, who claims he's done more for black people than any other president. This must be so jarring for you. What is it like to be a black leader and a black woman in Congress under Trump? 
I don't like to curse, so I won't. But this man, you is can despicable. curse on this show. You can curse He's on the show. Despicable white supremacist all the way. But what does it feel like to be a black leader, to be leading this charge basically for your entire life and a black woman who even in birth had to struggle because of systemic racism? What does it feel like to be in Congress under this man? It feels normal. It's another white supremacist platform. And so my skills of the past in terms of fighting racism and white supremacy, most black people <laughs> keep those yeah. skills. You know, I like guess that's, a, that's a really good point. The statutes in the Capitol. And so we keep our perspective. And yes, I may be a member of Congress and the highest ranking black woman in the House of Representatives. Okay, I'm part of the leadership team and all, but I know the struggles of black people and brown people in this country because I've lived them. And so it's important that those experiences are reflected in what I do. And dealing with Donald Trump, that's just another white supremacist we got to get rid of and get him out of the White House. So what am I doing? I'm helping organize, making sure these elections aren't stolen, making sure we do the census. So everything is about this struggle we're in for justice and to make this a better country for all and Black Lives Matter. And so that's what I do. You don't get tired when you do this every day. You might get angry. Right. You might get, I don't even say frustrated. Maybe people get frustrated who haven't been doing this and don't understand yeah. the nature of the beast. Right. But I understand the nature of the beast. Well, so much of activism is about being okay to plant the seed and not see it come into fruition. You have to be okay to plant the tree but never know how tall it's going to get. Yeah. And your fight continues. You are trying to enact a Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, Lisa. The first, this is a marathon we're in for justice. And remember, 401 years ago, my ancestors were enslaved. So we have to run each lap of this race and take that baton and keep going. So it's important now that we support reparations, H.R. 40, because now's the time to repair the damage. And also my bill, H.R. 100, which sets up a truth, racial healing and transformation commission. So the healing work is the process of peeling back those layers of denial and coming face to face with our true humanity, coming face to face with our innate capacity to love one another truly as human beings. Love has to be at the core of what we do is love for country, love for community, love for family. And above all, love for in the belief of what we can do together. Over 40 countries have done this after horrific genocides, crimes against humanity, brutalities against minority people. The United States has never done it. It's a day of reckoning, and we have to tell the truth about the context about systemic racism. A lot of progressive whites don't understand when they saw black people and brown people dying disproportionately from COVID, they call me up and ask me, what is this? I said, wait a minute, you don't connect that to 401 years ago and these chains haven't That's all right. been broken? Don't That's you understand right. their disparities and racism in the healthcare system where people of color, especially black people, don't get the kind of adequate health care they need? Or they live in a food desert where they can't get fresh produce or any healthy foods or their water is contaminated with lead, the environmental injustices. It doesn't stop. And I keep thinking and having this conversation with my husband about like, where would we be if it wasn't for cell phone videos? White people still wouldn't believe it. 
because they can see it now with their own eyes, there is this awakening. They can't turn away. And it scares the shit out of them because I really believe that white people benefit from their privilege. And so we all have to figure out how to support this movement in a way that this never never goes back to the way it was. It cannot go back. Well, let me tell you, Lisa, exactly what you just said is why we decided, I've been working on HR 100, my Truth and Racial Healing and Transformation Commission for three years. It was time to introduce it now within this context because now the stories have to be told. The day of reckoning has to come. We have to lay out how slavery has impacted generations of people with regard to the wage gap, the wealth gap, the environmental injustice, the lead in water. So I'm asking everyone, get to the members of Congress to sign on to HR 100 and HR 40, because we got to get to 218 to get these out of the House of Representatives. And what can people at home do to help to support with HR 40 and HR 100? Email, call, or tell their members of Congress to sign on because we're at about 140 co-sponsors within a couple of months. And John Lewis, when we introduced it, he signed on early and issued a very heavy-duty, profound statement in support of H.R. 100. And he was the sponsor of H.R. 40. So the big thing that people can do now is call your members of Congress, email them, text them, and tell them to get on to H.R. 100 and to H.R. 40. That's extremely critical. It's the power of the people, Elisa. And I'm telling you, people don't realize how powerful they are. I think that people don't realize that those phone calls make a big difference and the emails make a big difference. I think we have been so conditioned to think that our voice won't make a difference. And whether that be with voter suppression or any of it, I think people think their voice can't change things. Well, let me tell you, I'm telling you differently. It will work. It helps. And if we got reparations, H.R. 40 and H.R. 100 passed, which we're going to do, it's going to be because you have gotten your one member of Congress to be one of the 218 that we need to get it passed. Amazing. And finally, because I want to be mindful of your time, what gives you hope? Ah, My grandkids and all Mm. these young people in the streets. And I'm a person of faith. And so you got to have hope. I've always been optimistic and hopeful. And if you don't have hope and you don't have a vision, people perish. So as hard as things are right now, and as difficult as it is in D.C. right now with Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump and all these people, I have a lot of hope because the young people see their future. In many ways, what I do today is going to have impact on generations to come. And so I'm very hopeful and I'm going to stay hopeful. I'm not going to get cynical because if I get cynical, if any elected official you find are cynical, tell them it's time to go because you can't be cynical in this business. As No, and I I think we all have to find joy in this fight in the fight for democracy, in the fight for equality. There should be a sense of joy. We're fighting for future generations. It's okay to smile. It's okay. Let the Republicans be the ones that need the Botox. (laughs) We need to keep joyful and keep hopeful. And thank you so much, Congresswoman Lee. If there is anything I can ever do, just know you can pass the baton to me. I will run for you with pride. Thank you so much for your time. I rise today really with a very heavy heart, one that is filled with sorrow for the families and the loved ones who were killed and injured this week. Only the most foolish and the most callous would not understand the grief that has really gripped our people and millions across the world. This unspeakable act 
on the United States has really forced me, however, to rely on my moral compass, my conscience, and my God for direction. September 11th changed the world. Our deepest fears now haunt us. Yet I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. This is a very complex and complicated matter. Now this resolution will pass, although we all know that the President can wage a war even without it. However difficult this vote may be, some of us must urge the use of restraint. Our country is in a state of mourning. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment, let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. Now, I have agonized over this vote, but I came to grips with it today, and I came to grips with opposing this resolution during the very painful yet very beautiful memorial service. As a member of the clergy so eloquently said, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. Recently on NPR, I heard a journalist say something to the effect of Donald Trump offers us the choice between two realities, one that is evidence-based and one that is faith-based, with that faith centered in himself. I disagree. Reality is reality. There are not two realities. There is no reality in which masks do not work, in which Trump has done more than any president but Lincoln for black Americans that supports Trump's ridiculous claims of Obama's interference in his election campaign or any of his ludicrous lies. There is reality, and there is the disgusting anti-science, anti-woman, racist fantasy for white men that Trump is creating in a pathetic attempt to keep and hold his power. Reality is that Donald Trump should not have the ability to direct military action without congressional approval. No president should, but especially, especially not this president who is a slave to his own worst impulses and has no tether to the real world in which we all exist. Congress needs to revoke the standing use of force authorization to this president and to any future president. The act of war is too dangerous, too deadly, and too important to leave in the hands of any single individual, including individual one. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry.